you know, <laughs> the fact that we, we've ended up here, that the Lord has made it possible for us to buy this building. You know, when, when, you, when you start up a new church, um, especially in a city like Portland, I don't have a, a ma massive amount of experience like starting new churches. Um, but from what I do know, it is not normal that a church would start out and, and grow and, and become this, this community centered around Jesus and then be able to, to be a part of something like this where we've actually purchased this historic, this beautiful but slightly dilapidated historic church building and, and get to be a part of, of revitalizing it. Um, there was a little congregation that was meeting here um, just kind of on the, in the process of closing their doors. They'd been so faithful just to kind of keep it, keep it going, but it, the time had come. It was, it was clear they had dwindled down. They were quite small. And the pastor who's become a fairly good friend of mine, Pastor Roy, uh, he was nearing retirement. So they were just at that, that time in their life of the church to, to move on, to transition out. And we were looking for a place that we could uh, possibly just rent because that's typically what a three-year-old church plant does. But as we prayed and continued to ask God where he would have us go and where we'd continue to gather, the doors just seemed to keep flying open at this place. So we bought this little building. That was in, what, February? So, what, six months ago? Something like that, almost six months ago. God only knew what was about to transpire. A month later, COVID-19 happened. Um, we didn't even need a place to gather because no one was gathering. It wasn't a thing anymore. Um, but it gave us some time to work on the building a little bit, clean it up, refinish the floors. Um, you wouldn't think it from the outside, but it's, it's really become quite a beautiful space inside. Um, and many of you have been a part of that. But uh, it's been a journey. And now here we are. I'm sharing this because the fact that something extremely unique is happening in the world right now. I mean, it's, it's like off the charts bizarre, at least in our lifetime. I mean, I'm sure in the grand scheme of like life and, and the world, there's been a lot of, lot of things to go down. There's been pandemics. There's been civil rights movements and, and these incredible things. But for most of us, these are incredibly unique times. And in the midst of it all, God saw fit to bring us here, Northeast Portland, one block from MLK. I am genuinely excited to see exactly what God has planned for his church. It's an adventure and um, I want every little part of it. And I hope you guys do too. Next Saturday, this is not just a prayer meeting. This is not just another excuse to sing some songs. This is, this is an opportunity for us as a church to be a part of something historic, something that God is doing in the world, in our city. And so wherever you kind of stand in terms of like the current cultural moment and, and the, the protest to the riots, to the, to the, the race, issues and injustice and everything else going on. I'm so painfully aware that there's this extremely broad spectrum of, of how we are all processing these things. And that's fine. 
That's life. That's, that's being human. But one thing's for sure, as a church, as people who are looking to Jesus for hope, for justice, for, for change, we can all come together around him. Amen. No matter what our politics are, they're important, they matter, but let's face it, we're always gonna debate politics. That's just, that's, as long as we're Americans, okay? Let me put it that way. We're always gonna debate politics, but we can always come around Jesus. He is our justice, he is our hope. Amen? All right, that's the first sermon for free. Now here's the real one. This is Luke chapter 15. Starting in verse 11. Let me just read this to you guys. Luke 15, 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, my inheritance. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when the young man was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. But... When he came to himself, when he finally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And the young man arose and came to his father, but... While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and, oh, sorry. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and 
entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. This is the parable of the prodigal son. I normally don't do this, but um, I'm retitling the parable. Or I guess you could just say I'm titling my message, Lost, Loved, and the Greatest Challenge of Life. Lost, Love, and the Greatest Challenge of Life. About seven years ago, Shirley, my wife, and I, and our kids, suppose Judah would have been almost born. About seven years ago, all five of us were living in London, England, and uh, we had been there for about six or seven years at that point. My math is right. It would have been 2013. I had spent an inordinate amount of time um, reaching out to young people on some of the university campuses in London, wanting to tell people about Jesus, just start conversations and share the gospel. And along the way, I ended up connecting with quite a few um, Muslim people, mostly guys, that I had befriended and was beginning to enjoy like really good relationships. In fact, uh, our, our next door neighbor was a family from Iraq. And they're a wonderful, sweet Muslim family. And I, I became really good friends with Rocky. And uh, through some of those relationships, and just our time spent on the different university campuses there in central London, somehow I eventually ended up getting invited to participate in what they called a civil discussion about the true nature of God. They said, how would you like to, uh, to be a part of this event that we're putting on? The, the Muslim Student Society on the campus said, you know, we, we need a Christian who can come and, and have a discussion in like a public format. Uh, it was a debate. It was a total setup, um, which I kind of assumed was the case. But I said yes um, with much trepidation because I'm not a debater. I'm certainly not a, a, a religious scholar. I know Jesus. I read my Bible faithfully, but I'm not, I'm not like a, a scholarly debater. But what am I going to say? So the night came, and I was at Queen Mary University in East London. The auditorium was relatively full of mostly students, um, mostly Muslim students, uh, Sunni and Shiite Muslims. And uh, then a few of my Christian friends were there. And I quickly realized that I was, I was in way over my head. Like I had no idea what, what I, I did my best to research, but I really was, I had no business being there. I did know, though, that I had an opportunity to tell a whole auditorium full of students about Jesus. 
I had 15 minutes to make my opening statement, as it were, and I decided to read the parable of the prodigal son and take about five minutes to highlight some of his points. If I had to do it all over again, I think I would do the exact same thing. And if I had an audience in front of me in Portland right now, whether they were all young, sweet, wonderful Muslims or anyone else for that matter, this parable, this story that Jesus told about the heart of God, who God is and what he's really like is just one of the most timeless and, and wonderful, powerful stories that encapsulate the very heart of God himself. And so I want to take a few minutes to unpack us, pack it for us tonight. It starts out with the young man who he wanted his inheritance early. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the ancient Near East or that culture and how offensive it would have been if, you know, for a young man to go to his father before he'd even passed and said, hey, pops, I know, I know you're still kicking around, but I could really do with, a, with an advance on my inheritance. It's kind of like saying, since you're taking too long to die, can I go ahead and get, get what's coming to me? And the father says, yes, fine, very well. I'll split your inheritance between you and your brother. And the young man takes his money and he goes off to a far country and he ends up squandering it. Of course, eventually he comes to his senses. He wakes up one morning and apparently thinks to himself, man, I had it way, way better when I was at home. Sure, I had to live under my dad's rules and his authority, his house, but at least I had bread to eat. Perhaps if I go home, I could appeal to my dad. I could, I could admit that I've messed up, that I've sinned against my dad. I've, I've sinned against heaven itself. Won't you please take me back as like maybe one of your hired servants? I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life working off my debt if you'll just let me in the house like one of your servants. This is the lost son. And not only is he lost because he's far from home and he's wasted his inheritance, but he's so lost that he has now found him in a place that not only is he suffering the consequences of his own foolish decisions, but he's now suffering at the lack of charity that he's finding or not finding from the people around him. To me, this is a lostness that I can identify with. Because in life, I think the times that we wake up feeling the most lost, the most broken, it's usually because of a mixture of pain. Pain that we've inflicted upon ourselves, because we do tend to make some pretty poor decisions at times. But also the pain we experience because of just how harsh our world can be. How even when you're at your lowest, hoping that someone will give you just a, a piece of the food that the pigs eat, someone will have mercy. This young man could find none. So this is, this is true lost until he decides to make his way home. I love the way the prophet Isaiah, he puts it. 
we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. We all, at some point in our life, have or I think will experience this sort of state of being lost, broken, needing to somehow find our way home in life. But this brings us to the question that eventually became the point of debate that night on the campus at Queen Mary about seven years ago. Um, because we could all agree on the fact that look, we understand lost. We get that humanity is broken. Um, unless you've just lived an utterly sheltered life and have never ventured out, we can all agree with the fact that eventually we all find ourselves lost in life. But the big question is, where's home? Where is home? What is the answer? Who do we look to for our help? Where is home? And what's God going to be like if or when we ever get there? And this is where we ended up spending the rest of our evening kind of going back and forth. Like, what is the nature of God? And what will his reaction be when we finally face him? Will he let us in the house? Will he demand retribution? Will he have mercy? What will he be like? The lost son expected retribution. He had a whole speech planned for it. He was ready for the father to demand that the debt be covered. But instead he got home and he got love. He found that his father He found that his father wouldn't even let him finish, I'm sorry, will you hire me back in as your servant speech. He didn't even finish his speech, if you noticed. His father was just happy that he was home. You know, this is um, actually the third parable that Jesus tells back to back. I call them the Lost Trilogy. If you back up a little bit in Luke, he tells a parable about a lost sheep and how the owner of the sheep leaves the 99 to go and look for that one lost lamb. When he finds him, he's overwhelmed with joy that he invites his neighbors to come together and celebrate him. And then he tells another story about a woman who lost a single coin. She begins to scour the house looking for her little lost coin. When she finds it, again, she's overwhelmed with joy and invites her neighbors to come and celebrate her. And the third parable is about the lost son. And when he comes home, the father is so overwhelmed with joy that his lost son is finally home, that he invites everyone to come together and celebrate because he is overwhelmed with joy that his lost son has come home. In fact, each one of the parables ends by saying there is essentially no, no joy in heaven greater than the joy when the lost son or the sheep or the coin comes home. This is the heart of God. He longs for his lost children to come home. Which brings us to 
what I would argue to be one of the greatest challenges in life. It brings us to the story of the second son as well, the older brother. He was not excited nor overwhelmed with joy at the return of his little brother. In fact, he wouldn't even refer to him as his brother. He called him your son. Your son who wasted the inheritance on prostitutes. I don't know how he knew that. I think he assumed as much. Your son who's wasted the inheritance, half of which was supposed to be mine, and now he's back. I'm not excited. I want to know who's going to cover the debt. Who's going to make up for the loss? Where is the justice? How will justice be done? Isn't that the big talk on the street right now? Justice. Both of the sons knew that justice must be a part of the equation. The younger son expected to see justice done to him. The older son demanded justice be done for him. But they both knew that justice somehow had to be a part of the equation. The older son expected judgment the one son expected judgment, the other demanded it, but the father had something else in mind. He would absorb the debt of his lost son. He would absorb the debt himself. He ran to his son. I do know this about the ancient Near Eastern culture. For an elderly man, for a father to run to one of his sons would have been seen as a, a gross act of dishonor. And yet for joy that his son had returned, the father ran to his son, bringing shame upon himself. He kissed his filthy son, defiling his own self. He covered his son with the most expensive robe. Did you catch that? He told the servant, quick, go inside, get the most expensive robe. Whose robe would that have been? It would have been the father's robe. Quick. Go get my robe. I want you to cover my son. Giving up his own garment for the sake of his naked and ashamed boy. And he put the ring and the sandals on his son, restoring his dignity, making it clear to all that this is no mere servant who's come home to work off, of his, work off his debt. This is my son. My boy is home. His dignity is restored. Word on the street is there will be no peace without justice. Have you come across that one? It's everywhere. There will be no peace without justice. No peace, no justice. What kind of justice are we looking for? The great challenge of life is this. How will we pursue justice? 
And more specifically, what will be our motivation in pursuing justice? Both sons expected justice to be done. Neither one of them understood how justice would actually come about. The father had a different plan in mind. The desire for justice begins with the pain of some kind of deficit suffered. Have you ever desired to see justice done in your life on the behalf of another? It begins with the pain of suffering some sort of deficit. Someone took something from you. Someone stole your dignity. Someone caused you to feel ashamed or dirty or dishonored. Or perhaps you never received something that you should have. Growing up, you never had a father that actually showed you physical affection. And therefore you grew up feeling this deficit in your soul and this growing painful desire to see some kind of justice done. How we channel that desire for justice will ultimately potentially land us in two or more very different places. The desire for justice, it's about as human as it comes. But how we pursue justice, the means by which we see justice done, our motivation for wanting to see justice come about. Well, that's a whole nother story. The motivation of the older son, he demanded justice, but to what end and why? The older son, you could just see him hobbling along, crippled by the weight of his own shame, expecting justice to be done, but to what end? A desire for justice fueled by resentment and pain will inevitably give way to retaliation, revenge, more pain, and ultimately even deep personal shame. This is why the Bible speaks so plainly against the desire for revenge. Because revenge never, ever ends well. It's a sort of a warped sense of wanting to see justice done, but it only ever backfires on you because in the end, you just, you just feel ashamed for who you've become. But the desire for justice fueled by compassion gives way to sacrifice and mercy and ultimately freedom from the cycle of receiving and giving pain, justice fueled by compassion is not justice to spite those who have sinned against you, but rather it's a justice to see healing and restoration come to relationships and communities and our families. The justice of God is a Trojan horse. It's a justice packed full of mercy. It's a justice that doesn't destroy our enemies. It wins them over to see relationships healed, 
communities restored and families come together again. As we learn to forgive the debt of those who have sinned against us, like the father forgave the debt of his son, as we learn to forgive the debt of those who have sinned against us, to bear the pain of injustice committed against us for the sake of seeing the indigent come home, then we begin to love and live like Jesus. We begin to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. When we learn to absorb the debt of injustice. Which by the way, to do is nothing short of a radical miracle. See, justice was done that day when the son came home. The father didn't overlook the debt. He didn't pretend like injustice wasn't done. It's just what he did about it that was so radical and unexpected. The father absorbed the debt himself. The older son, he wasn't keen on the idea. He didn't like the idea of the old man absorbing the debt because to be fair, part of that debt would have been absorbed in the inheritance of the older son himself. And that's something to say about family. That's something to say about church family. You know, I love the idea of being a part of a community where people come together and love one another celebrate one another. The idea of being this diverse group of people who all bring their little quirks and, 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 and color and, and, and language and culture and, and everything else. And, and, and when we come together and we sing some songs and we talk about loving each other and, and we just, it's just great, it's grand, it's glorious. Until someone imperfect comes along and starts to mess with it all. Which, by the way, is you and you, especially you, and you and you and you and me too. There's something about being the family of God that requires us to bear with one another to forgive the debt of one another the way our Father has forgiven our debt against him himself. And to do that, to be a community of debt forgivers, where we absorb the injustice that we've done against one another, that is divine. That is to love like our Savior loves, who died for us, not after we had apologized and made everything right, he died for us while we are still against him, making it possible for us to come home. And as a community, when we begin to practice doing justice like that, 
the world knows not of that love. We begin to exhibit the very love of Jesus Christ himself. It's when we start acting like the hands and feet, the body of Christ. And you know what I imagine? And this will be my final thought. You know what I imagine? If Jesus were to have told like part two to the parable, you ever wonder how these stories work out as the years go by? I bet you that kid came home so messed up with so much trauma, with so much pain that eventually he probably, I mean, I would imagine he probably tried running away from home. I remember when we adopted our dog, Cinnamon. How long ago was it? Four or five years, Shirley? How long have we had Cinnamon? You're not even paying attention. Gotcha. When we adopted our dog, the poor thing had so much trauma, beaten and abandoned. All I wanted to do was run away from home. I kept trying to tell this dog, like, we love you. You're home. You're safe. We will feed you. We will not hit you. It cost us something. It cost us something to keep loving this, this wonderful, innocent, hurt creature. And that's what we're like. The family of God, when we invite home astray, when the lost son or daughter shows up and says, hey, I'm home. Is there grace for me? Did Jesus die for me as well? Is that justice for me too? And the answer is yes. Welcome home. Let's celebrate because I'm pretty sure that's what heaven is doing right now. And then a week or two go by later and guess what? That person still got the trauma, the pain, the junk, still hasn't taken a bath. And that stuff's gotta be dealt with. Just like you and you and you and you and me and us. And that's when the family of God really starts to be the family of God. When we love each other and love each other and forgive each other and bear with each other and suffer the pain of each other when we don't act right. Because that is the heart of our Father. Hannah, you want to come on up, please? Can we stand together as we finish out this service? It's so good to see all your faces. I didn't get to do my, my normal morning thing, so I'm gonna say it tonight. <laughs> good evening, Gray City. Good evening. <laughs> We're gonna sing doxology together just to end. It's a sweet, simple way 
to give glory back to God. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above says in Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming down. God, thank you for coming down to pay the price for our sin for seeing justice done not against us, but for us, that we might experience your love, that we might have something wonderful to share with others, that we might be your people, your children, your sons and daughters, not only reconciled to you, our maker, but even to one another. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's feeling unloved, who's feeling perhaps like no one does care, like perhaps they've been nothing but the victim or living on the receiving end of injustice. Lord, I pray that tonight something would change and that you would help us as a church family to come around that person, to come around each other, as, as well as we can with social distancing and be your hands and feet so that not a single one of us would, would leave here feeling unloved. Heavenly Father, we pray for our city. Lord, we pray that where there are those crying out to see justice done, Lord, I pray that you would use us as your Trojan horse 
your people coming to stand at the gap, not just to hurl stones, but to to be those who would who would who would suffer alongside those who suffer, who would mourn with those who mourn. Lord, who would come come down, that we would get into the trenches, the trenches, Lord, of pain, of injustice. Lord, and build the, the people around us up. That this city that you have called us to would become like a beacon of light, your light, the kind of light that overcomes darkness. Lord Jesus, I'm asking that as we gather this coming Saturday, as we gather the weeks to come, as we continue to meet in this place and look to you, as we worship you, as we cry out to you day and night, I pray that you would do something beyond us. I pray that the truth of your gospel would begin to resound and that people would know that there is only one hope in this world and it's no human, it's no political system, it's no amount of money, it's no genius, it's you, our savior, our redeemer, our king, our good father, our Lord, Jesus, you are our hope and you are our justice. You are our compassion. You are our friend. We love you. Amen. Amen.